In the spring of the year 1980, Mount St. Helens in the state of Washington began to send out danger signs that it was about to erupt. In March, an earthquake registering 4.1 on the Richter scale occurred near Mount St. Helens. Later that month, there was a minor eruption from the mountain that sounded like a sonic boom. Soon, sheriff's deputies ordered all the residents of the base of the mountain to leave the area. However, there was an old man who lived there, a man by the name of Harry, who refused to, to go. He refused to leave. Harry was a stubborn man who lived alone with his 16 cats, and when ordered by the authorities to leave, he arrogantly said this. He said, nobody knows more about this mountain than Harry, and it don't dare blow up on him. I'm having a great time living my life alone. I'm king of all I survey. I got plenty of whiskey. I got food enough for 15 years, and I'm sitting high on the hog. I don't know how one sits high on the hog, but Harry was doing that. In spite of Harry's very confident words, on Sunday morning, May 18, 1980, Mount St. Helens erupted. It exploded, sending rock and ash almost 14 miles high. One writer described the eruption with these words. He said, the force of the blast flattened trees, uprooting and smashing them like millions of dominoes spreading out from the crater. Steam, ash, and grass spouted from the incinerated vegetation. Mud flows flooded the rivers and transformed the beautiful mountain lands into a ghastly charred landscape. The mountain's vengeance was 500 times greater than the nuclear bomb which leveled Hiroshima. So whatever happened to Harry? Well, tragically, Harry along with his 16 cats... 15 years worth of food and plenty of whiskey was buried alive under tons of rock and mud. He had refused to take the warning seriously and then it was just too late. Now today as we return to our study of the Sermon on the Mount in Luke chapter 6, we have come to the concluding words of this sermon in which the Lord issued forth a very strong warning that also needs to be taken seriously before it's too late. The passage I'm referring to is Luke chapter 6, verses 46 through 49. So if you turn there, I'll read it to you. Jesus said, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts on them, I'll show you whom he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock. And when a flood occurred, the torrent burst against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who was heard and has not acted accordingly, it's like a man who built a house on the ground without any foundation and the torrent burst against it and immediately it collapsed and the ruin of that house was great. Now, as I said a moment ago, these are our Lord's final words of his sermon, his Sermon on the Mount. And they're appropriately directed to people who sat before him that day in the area of Galilee and heard what he had to say, but who had not acted upon what he had to say. They had not decided, they had not made a decision to obey, to act upon his words. See, while most of the Sermon on the Mount serves as instruction for True disciples, genuine disciples of Jesus, his followers, teaching us how to live righteous lives as citizens of his kingdom. Jesus turned the end of this sermon into an evangelistic appeal 
to unbelievers who were in the crowd as he warned them about the dangerous consequences of not committing themselves to him as their Lord. And the dangerous consequence he was referring to was the coming judgment by God. It would come, he said, in the form of a great storm, a great flood, he said, that threatened great destruction upon those who were not prepared for it. Now, how do we know this? How do we know that the flood that Jesus was referring to in this parable, in the closing verses, was a picture of God's coming judgment? Well, I want to remind you that the New Testament gives two accounts of the Sermon on the Mount. One is found here in Luke chapter 6, but the other one, which is a fuller account, is found in the Gospel of Matthew chapters 5 through 7. And in Matthew's larger, fuller version, it is very clear that Jesus concludes his sermon talking about God's judgment. There's just no question about it. Let me show you. His evangelistic appeal actually begins in Matthew chapter 7, verse 13, as Jesus warns unbelievers in the crowd that day about the broad way that leads to destruction. He said, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. Then in the next few verses, verses 15 through 20, he speaks of the danger imposed by deceptive false prophets or false teachers who he called wolves in sheep's clothing. Teachers who try to persuade unbelievers to just stay on that broad way that leads to destruction. You don't need to get off of that. The other side is narrow-minded. They're intolerant. You just stay where you are. Beware, Jesus said, of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You'll know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you'll know them by their fruits. Now notice in verse 19, Jesus implies that judgment awaits these false shepherds. He said every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down, thrown into the fire. That implies judgment. But more than implying their judgment, Jesus went on to explicitly state that they and all those who follow them and follow their errors would be judged for sure. He said these very, very scary words in chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now, I want you to notice that Jesus mentions a certain day in these verses. He refers to it as that day when people will stand before him and the day that Jesus has in mind is the day of judgment. So when he states on that day, he'll say to them, depart from me. He means depart from my presence into hell. This is a sentence of judgment. Now, it's right after these words in both Matthew's account and Luke's account of the Sermon on the Mount that we read that Jesus concluded his sermon. He ended the sermon by giving the story of these two men, one who built his house 
on the firm foundation of the rock and the other who built his house upon the sand of the ground without any foundation. And so he is still talking about judgment. He talked about it before. He ends the sermon about judgment. So the question is, who are these men? Who do they refer to? Who do they represent? Well, based on the context of this story, the answer is that the first man, who in Matthew's account is called a wise man, he's a picture of a true believer who is prepared for the judgment of God. The second man, called a foolish man, is a picture of, watch this, not an ordinary unbeliever, but an unbeliever who thinks he's a believer, but he isn't. And therefore, he is not prepared when the judgment of God hits. In other words, the foolish man is a non-Christian who has allowed himself to be deceived into thinking that he is a true Christian. And the proof that he is not a true Christian, he's not a genuine believer, is that there's absolutely no evidence of obedience to Christ in his life. He has heard Christ's words but he has chosen to do nothing about them. He simply ignores them in spite of the fact that he knows them. And what supports the view that these two men are a contrast between a genuine Christian and one who only thinks he's a Christian is that this story is really a continuation of the point that Jesus began making about being vulnerable to deception when he brought up the subject of false prophets, warning us to beware of being deceived by such individuals. First, he warned us of the danger of being deceived by the message and the the outward appearance of these false teachers. He referred to them as wolves in sheep's clothing. They disguise themselves. They're not easy to detect. Next, he warned us about the danger of being deceived into thinking that we're Christians because of our religious activities. Lord, Lord, we did all of these things in your name. And now the Lord gives us his third and his final warning by telling us to beware of being deceived into thinking that we are Christians simply because of our familiarity and our understanding of his words, his teaching. Folks, that's what makes this last warning by Jesus so relevant and pertinent and applicable to people like us, people who have a knowledge and an understanding of the words of Jesus, people who have heard many, many sermons about Jesus over the years. See, this is a warning directed by Jesus, not at those who are outwardly antagonistic to the gospel, nor to those who are atheists or agnostics or those who are ignorant of the Bible, Christ's warning is specifically aimed at those individuals who have a great deal of familiarity with his words and have knowledge of many, many Bible truths. And because of this familiarity, this understanding of the truth, they feel quite confident and quite secure that they are true Christians. But it's a false security. A false security because though they have heard Bible teaching, they, they don't, note this, they do not apply the Bible to their lives at all. And therefore, they're on very shaky ground, ground that simply will not stand up against the storm of God's coming judgment. And that's precisely the reason why Jesus told this parable about these two, these two men. He wanted those who knew his words but never acted upon his words to act now by submitting their lives to his authority, his lordship his kingship, before it was too late.
before judgment came and they were swept away in the storm. And so these final words from Jesus, his sermon on the mount are, are critical for us, absolutely critical for us to understand and to respond to. Because as people who attend church where the Bible is taught, we need to make sure that we have not allowed ourselves to be lulled <coughs> into a false confidence about our relationship with Christ. Which means we need to make certain that we haven't mistaken mere head knowledge of his words with a heart commitment to his words. This is the difference between eternal life and eternal death. And there are many people who attend church who are simply under the illusion that they really know Christ when in reality they have only some intellectual mental assent knowledge of what he taught. That's it. Goes no further than that. Listen to these words from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones and you'll see how this final message of Christ is just so pertinent to people like us. The doctor wrote this. He said, clearly the words are addressed to those who are professing Christians. They're not addressed to people who have no interest whatsoever in the kingdom. They're addressed to people who have been listening and who who have liked listening to teaching concerning the kingdom. These words are obviously addressed to members of churches to those who make the claim of being Christian, who profess discipleship, and who are seeking the benefits and blessings of salvation. Everything about the picture emphasizes that, and it's meant to show us the difference between the false and the true profession of Christianity. The difference between the Christian and the seeming Christian. Between the man who really is born again and is a child of God, and the man who only thinks he is. Now that's our background. With this as our background, then we're ready to delve into these final words of Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount. And they unfold in four parts. First, Jesus asks a question of those who claim that he's their Lord. He asks them a question. Second, Jesus states what's involved in having him as Lord. What are we talking about when we say he's Lord, he's our Lord? Third, he reveals how someone who knows him as Lord fares when a storm comes. And fourth and finally, he reveals how someone who doesn't know him as Lord fares when a storm comes as well. And so we begin our study where Jesus began by asking a question to those who claim he's their Lord. Verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Now, at this particular time in Christ's ministry, wherever he went, huge crowds followed him. He was barely able to get away by himself. It was certainly the case here when he gave the Sermon on the Mount. There was lots of people there listening to him. Notice what we read back in in Luke chapter 6, verse 17. Jesus came down with them and stood on a level place. (coughs) And there was a large crowd of his disciples and a great throng of people from all over Judea and Jerusalem and the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon. Here's what we learn. Having just appointed from his many disciples, he appointed 12 of them to be his special representatives, known as the 12 apostles. He was up on a mountain. It's really not a mountain like we think of it. It's more of a hill. He took them up on this hill. He appointed them his apostles. Then he came down from that hill with them to give his sermon. And Luke here tells us those who were in the audience were, first of all, the apostles. They were there and they were the closest to him. Then a little bit further back 
were a large number of disciples, men and women who followed him all over Israel as he ministered. And then on top of that, we're told that there was a vast number of other people who apparently verbally claimed some type of allegiance to Jesus so that they referred to him as Lord. And it was to this vast number of people who were not his disciples, but who nonetheless called him their Lord, that Jesus asked the question, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Now, the fact that these people call Jesus Lord indicates that they, they professed some type of allegiance to him, some type of loyalty to him. They claimed that he was their master, their rabbi, their teacher, that, that they were in submission to him, that he was their authority. But notice how Jesus actually worded his question. He said that these people called him Lord, Lord. Now, he doesn't mean by this that when they personally came up to him and addressed him, that they repeated his title twice, Lord, Lord. No, he doesn't mean that at all. But rather, this was an expression of emphasis. In other words, they were emphatic. They were insistent that he was their Lord. Lord, Lord. That's the thought. But regardless of how intense, how insistent they were, Jesus knew the truth about them. And he knew because he's God, he knows everything that goes on in an individual's heart and mind. He knew that he wasn't their Lord, regardless of what they said. What they said, those were simply empty words. And the proof of this is that they did not obey him. That's why he said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? You see, as someone has put it, words are no substitute for obedience. But words are all these people had. That's all they had to offer. Jesus, you're our Lord. Jesus, we'll follow you anywhere. Jesus, we love what you're teaching us. Jesus, we agree with your teaching. Yes, we're through with the scribes and Pharisees. You're the man. We will follow you. But my friends, those empty words are very similar to what a lot of people who think they're Christians say today. I love the Lord. Yes, I lo I've always loved the Lord. Yes, I accepted him years ago. Of course I'm a Christian. Why would you even ask that? I've even given my testimony in the waters of baptism. Of course I believe in Jesus. I prayed a prayer years ago. I prayed with my mother. I prayed in church. I, I pray yes, I know him. Listen, if words like these are all you've got, but your life is not characterized by obedience to Christ, then no matter what you say, you are simply not a Christian. And I say that upon the authority of the Word of God. Because Scripture makes it abundantly clear. In fact, so cl clear that it, it seems like it shouts the message to us. That those who know Jesus Christ as Savior also know Him as Lord. And the proof of that is that their lives are characterized by obeying Him. Now, listen, let me balance this. We're certainly not talking about perfect obedience. We're not saying sinlessness. We're not saying that we don't stumble. We're not saying that we never fall at times. But nonetheless... What Jesus is talking about is a lifestyle clearly marked by obedience. As we say in sports, you're trending in the right direction. Listen to all these verses that connect faith in Christ with obedience to Christ. Romans 1.5 
through whom we have, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. Paul said when we preach the gospel, we are calling the Gentiles, because he was the apostle of the Gentiles, we're calling them to the obedience to Christ. Not, not simply to, to pray a prayer, but to obey him. Romans 15 verse 18, For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed. 1 Peter 1-2, speaking of our calling, he said, Our calling is according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. That's why we've been called. We've been called into a fellowship of obedience to Christ. John 14-15, If you love me, Jesus said, you will keep my commandments. 1 John 2, 3 and 4, by this we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I've come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. And finally, James 1, but prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves, who deceive themselves. My friends, it doesn't matter how strongly you say you believe in Jesus if you are not in submission to his word, then according to his word, you are not a Christian. So please don't deceive yourself into thinking that you're saved when in fact you aren't. If you call him Lord, but don't do as he says without even a desire to obey him, then you have revealed the truth about yourself. That you don't have true saving faith, you have lip service faith. John MacArthur put it this way. He said, Submission to Jesus Christ as Lord is a non-negotiable element of true salvation. To have God on one's lips but not in one's heart is profane blasphemy. So Jesus has made it abundantly clear. If you call him Lord and don't do as he says, then he isn't your Lord at all. But Jesus didn't leave it at that. As he continued his sermon, the next thing he did was explain how someone makes him their Lord. He's telling them, you're not, I'm not your Lord, but then let me tell you how you make me your Lord. And he did this by stating what's involved in having him as Lord. Verse 47, everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts on them, I'll show you whom he is like. Now with this statement, Jesus explains what it means what's actually involved in having him and embracing him as Lord. He describes it in three steps, with the first step being this, coming to him. That's number one. Jesus said, everyone who comes to me. Now, normally, today, when we hear these words, someone has come to, to Christ, we think of coming to him for salvation. But that's not what Jesus meant. Not in this setting, when he said, everyone who comes to me. Instead, he meant coming to him in the way that the people who were in attendance that day, listening to him give his Sermon on the Mount, how they had come to him, meaning that they had come to hear him speak. That's the thought. They had come to hear him speak. They came to listen to what he had to say. In other words, they had come to a place, a physical location, where they were in a position to hear Jesus teach and speak. And that's exactly what you're doing today in church. You have come to a place, a location, this building, where you're able to hear the Word of God preached. So that's a good thing, because you have to first know 
what Jesus said, especially what he says about himself, if you're ever going to have him as your Lord. But it can't stop there. It doesn't stop there. You see, there are many individuals who they've attended church for many, many years. Some have just grown up in the church, and yet Jesus is not their Lord. They're in a place where they hear the word of God preached, but it hasn't made any difference in their lives. It hasn't impacted their lives. It's made no dent at all in the way they live. He still isn't their Lord. And so Jesus gave a second step that's involved in having him as Lord, and that is hearing. He said, everyone who comes to me and hears my words. Now by hearing, Jesus means not that they're just casually hearing what he's teaching while at the same time their minds are someplace else, but rather that they are listening intently. They're listening to what he has to say. They're paying attention to his words. They're being attentive to his every word. See, lots of people who go to church don't really hear what's being taught from the pulpit because they're just not paying attention. They're either thinking about something else or perhaps they're doodling on a piece of paper or their tablets, but they're not listening. They aren't actually hearing what's being preached. Years ago, while on vacation, Michelle and I visited a church where the pastor was giving a very powerful sermon. But there was a young boy, I think he was a teenage young man, sitting in front of us who spent literally the entire time drawing pictures on a piece of paper, not paying attention to anything that was being preached by his pastor. And both Michelle and I thought at the time, what a wasted opportunity. He may never hear anything more profound than what was preached today, but he didn't listen. He squandered this amazing opportunity God had given him to hear the truth, and he could never get that opportunity back. I think Ken Hughes nailed it, nailed what's going on in many churches on any given Sunday when he said these words. He said, today many church attenders listen to God's word the way they listen to a flight attendant explain an aircraft safety features. You're only laughing because you do this. Totally tuned out. That little talk has to be one of the worst jobs on any flight. The moment the flight attendant begins, he or she endures a ritual of frequent flyer rejection. The shades go down in the passenger's eyes, the newspapers go up, the headphones go on. One flight attendant, exasperated by the inattention, altered the wording to, and I quote, when the mask drops down, place it over your navel and continue to breathe normally. And listen, nobody noticed. No one noticed. They weren't listening. So in light of the fact that listening and paying attention in church, it's not always easy, and I get that, especially in our world of reduced attention spans and the day when daylight savings time begins and you lose an hour, I want to give you some suggestions that I think will help you to concentrate on listening to what's being preached in church. You might want to take notes. That's part of it. First of all, try to get a good night's sleep on Saturday. That's where it all begins, so that you come refreshed and alert to church, and not groggy because you chose to stay up too late. Then make it a point to specifically pray for the Lord to help you to concentrate and not let your mind wander. It is a battle, so pray that the Lord will help you. And then pray for the preacher to be clear in what he's saying so that if you're listening, you can understand what he's talking about. Next, do everything you can to follow the preacher's train of thought. That involves having your Bibles or your tablets, your devices open to the passage 
that is being taught. And then, this is important, take notes. Come prepared to take notes, which will not only enhance your comprehension of what's being taught, but it will help to keep your mind focused so that it won't easily wander off into some other area. So, coming to where the word is taught, hearing what's being taught, those are the first two steps necessary to have Jesus as your Lord. But once again, there are scores of people who have attended church for years. I've said they've grown up in the church where they've heard sermon after sermon and still Jesus isn't their Lord. And that's why Jesus gave the third step, which if someone will take this step, they will have Jesus as their Lord. And what is that? Doing. Jesus said, everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts on them. Now to act on Christ's words are to do them, to apply them to your life, to put his word into practice. This is absolutely critical. And it's the very thing that Jesus said, those who are not his followers, but call him Lord, don't do. They, they do not do what he says. In other words, Jesus said that those who know him as Lord, they do obey him. With their first act of obedience being that they trust him for salvation with a heart that's in submission to his authority. That is to say that after coming to a place where they hear him speak and they trust his sacrificial death on the cross for their salvation, they go out and they demonstrate their submission to Christ as their Lord by doing what he's told them to do. They take his word seriously. Now folks, it's this obedience to Christ's word, that's the real test as to whether or not he's your Lord. I don't want to shake anyone's assurance of salvation. If you've come to Christ, you've truly trusted him, and you have a desire to obey him, then you're a believer. But if it's only lip service, if you've only made a profession, but Christ's words have no impact on your life, you can take them or leave them, and you choose to leave them, then you're not a believer. If you are obedient to him, he's your Lord. And it forces you, and I'm going to force you to to think this morning about how you respond to a sermon, how you respond to a biblical truth that you've read about in a book, how you respond when a Sunday school teacher imparts biblical truth to you. How do you respond? Do you obey the truths you've heard or do you simply hear them, acknowledge them to be true, you might even like them, and then do nothing about them? That's the kind of person Jesus was addressing here. Those who heard his words, called him their Lord, and then proceeded to ignore his teaching and went out and did whatever they simply wanted to do. They lived their lives as if his word didn't matter because it didn't matter to them. You see, these, those Jesus was referring to, they're the very people who were there. They heard him verbally give the Sermon on the Mount, but they were about to walk away when it was finished and just go home without any intention of putting into practice anything they heard from Christ that day. So, what about you? What about you? For a number of months, we've been studying the Sermon on the Mount. Have you obeyed it? Has it changed your life at all? Has it made a difference in the way you live? Have you applied any of its truths? For example, weeks ago, we spent a considerable amount of time studying Jesus' words that we are to love our enemies by doing good to them, not ignoring them, 
Not saying, hey, I don't like them. They don't like me. I'll just stay clear of them. No, Jesus said, love your enemies by doing something tangibly good for them. Have you done that? Have you been praying for them? Have you been showing mercy to those who persecute you? To those who don't like you, who despise you? Have you done any of that? Have you made a phone call or a text message or even an email to someone who has hurt you in the past so that you can learn what their needs are in order to do something kind and beneficial for them? Have you asked someone who has treated you poorly how you can pray for them? No strings attached? How can I pray for you? Have you prayed for the salvation of someone who has persecuted you? Have you made any effort to show kindness to someone who didn't deserve your kindness? Have you forgiven someone who has sinned against you? Have you repented of a judgmental spirit? All of that is in the Sermon on the Mount in Luke's Gospel. Have you done any of that? If you answer no to these things, the question is why not? Why not? This is what the Lord through his word has told you to do. Are you like those who Jesus said only call him Lord, but he isn't their Lord? They never obey him. They sat there, they heard him teach, and they did nothing about it, even though they might have agreed with him. They might have even liked what he had to say, but they didn't obey it. Or is he your Lord, so that you take these commands seriously, and you demonstrate your allegiance to him as Lord by obeying his words after you hear them preached? One pastor I recently read explained how true believers should respond every time they hear a sermon. He said, every time we truly hear the word and are authentically moved, we must resolve to act upon it. Most of the time, the resolutions will not be dramatic or grand, but what seems to be some small action. Perhaps it'll be a note written, an adjustment at work, an apology, a gift, a few words of witness, a commitment, a kind word, a subtle change in attitude. But the key is do it. Do not procrastinate or you'll forget it. And when you do it, you'll be stepping into true discipleship. Each step will become more natural and a little easier. Now folks, this is how someone who has Jesus as Lord lives their life. They hear what Christ has to say. They go out and obey him. No matter how difficult that obedience might be. They do it. Why? Because he's their Lord. And if he's their Lord, they obey him. And having said that, that he's Lord over those who hear him and act on what they hear, Jesus proceeded then to give another truth. This is a third truth about those who have him as their Lord by revealing how someone who knows him as Lord, how they fare when a storm comes. Verses 47 and 48. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts on them, I'll show you whom he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock. And when the flood occurred, the torrent burst against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. Now with these words, Jesus illustrates how the person who knows him as their Lord, how they live. And what happens to this man when a fierce storm comes and bursts against his house? The same story is presented in Matthew's version of the Sermon on the Mount. And it does have some more details than Luke's account. And I think these details will help enhance our understanding of the truths that the Lord was teaching. So I'd like you to look at Matthew 7, 24 and 25. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them 
may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and yet it did not fall for it had been founded on the rock. Now, as you can see, this is the same exact story that we find in Luke chapter 6. Just a little more information. For one thing, the man who acts upon Christ's words, meaning the individual who truly knows him as Lord, he's referred, notice, he's referred to as a wise man. And because he is wise, he builds his house on, a, on the rock. Now what Jesus is saying is that this man is wise because after listening to his sermon on the mount, he got up, he went home, and he proceeded to build a house. Now it's important to understand that in this parable, Jesus is using the imagery of building a house only as a metaphor. It's a, it's a figure of speech. He's not referring to a literal house. The Lord's not giving a lecture on how to construct a new home in the Galilee area. Although Jesus very well could have spoken about that with credibility because he was a carpenter. Not only a rabbi, but a carpenter. And very likely he was involved in building some homes in this very area in Israel. But he's simply using the analogy, the imagery of building a house as a figure of speech to represent a man's life. His life. In other words, he's talking about what we build our lives upon, what we base our decisions, our actions, our attitudes upon. This wise man heard the Sermon on the Mount. He immediately upon going home, he began to build his life upon Christ's words. The very words that he just heard from Jesus. Jesus said that he went out, constructed his house on a foundation of rock. In other words, he means a large span of bedrock. Now in this parable, the solid rock that this wise man built his life upon, that's a reference to Christ's words and that's exactly why this man was wise. Because after listening to Jesus and his teaching, he chose to build his life upon those stable, rock-like truths. Those immovable truths. Notice something important. In Luke's version of this parable, he says that this man not only built his house upon a rock, but notice he says that he dug deep. He dug deep and he laid the foundation of his house upon this rock. <coughs> In other words, there's nothing shallow about this man's commitment to Christ's words. There's a depth. There's a depth to his, this commitment that goes beyond the shallowness of mere religious appearance. So that the foundation of this wise man's life is the word of God. To put it another way, because Jesus is his Lord, he builds his life upon what Christ says. My friends, that's, that's how someone who knows Jesus as Lord lives. They evaluate all of their conduct, their attitudes, in light of what the word of God says. They, they see everything through the lens of Scripture. And that's how they arrive at all their decisions, all their actions. So is that how you live? Is it? Or doesn't it matter to you what Jesus says? Before you make a decision on any important matter, do you consider what the Bible says about this matter? Do you look to God's word to guide you, for example, in how you treat your spouse? How you treat your siblings? How to raise your children? How to handle your finances? How to conduct yourself at work? At school? In any other life situation? 
This is what you should be doing if Jesus is truly your Lord. His word should matter to you and you should do it. Years ago, I heard a preacher say, if Jesus Christ is not Lord of all, then he's not Lord at all. Now notice what Jesus says will happen if you build your life upon him and his word. He tells us that the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and yet it did not fall for it had been founded on the rock. Now based on what we know about Israel, it must have been during the early days of summer, that's the dry season in Israel when this man built his house. But then the rainy season came. And a storm arose, one of those terrible storms that just sweep in from the Mediterranean Sea with cloudburst upon upon cloudburst. And the rains fell and the waters from flooding areas rose up against this house and the winds battered the walls of this house. But in spite of the pounding that it took, Jesus said that the house withstood the storm. Why? Because it was built upon the foundation of the rock. Listen closely. Though all of us Without exception, all of us face storms in life in the form of various trials. Some of them very severe trials. And while it's true that only those whose lives are founded on the word of, of God can weather those storms, nonetheless, though that's true, nonetheless the storm that Jesus is talking about here is the ultimate storm, meaning God's final judgment. That's why back in chapter 7 of Matthew 22, Jesus mentions, I said earlier, that day, meaning it's the day of judgment. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not do this? Did we not do that in your name? And he'll say to them, depart from me. I, I never knew you. You're a worker of iniquity. Listen, these words about the coming storm of God's judgment, these are Christ's final words in his Sermon on the Mount, and that's why he's giving here such a strong warning to everyone that God's judgment for our sins is coming. You may think, well, it's not coming. It hasn't come for years. Why would I think it's coming? It's coming because God keeps his word. Regardless of what you think, regardless of what you feel, there is a day coming when he will judge people in the most severe of all storms, And what he's saying is that only those who have placed their faith, their confidence, their trust, their reliance in Christ as Savior and Lord, having built their lives on him and his word, only those people will escape his judgment because Christ has been judged in their place. And they believe that. They have accepted Christ's substitutionary death as the judgment for their sin and therefore they know that God will pass over their house without judging them, just like he did to the Israelites in the Old Testament who sprinkled blood on their homes. When he saw the blood, he passed over. When he sees the blood of Christ in a believer's heart, he passes over the sins. But that's not true of everyone. It's certainly not true of the person who calls Jesus Lord, but who doesn't follow him as Lord And so having just told us how someone who knows him as Lord fares when the storm of judgment comes, Jesus concludes his sermon by revealing a fourth and final truth, namely how someone who doesn't know him as Lord fares when a storm comes. Verse 49, but the one who is heard and has not acted accordingly is like a man who built a house on the ground without any foundation and the torrent burst against it and immediately it collapsed and the ruin of that house was great. 
And once again, we learn more of the details of this parable from Matthew's fuller account where we read these words in chapter 7, verses 26 and 27, Matthew chapter 7. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Jesus said that everyone who hears his words and does not act upon them, meaning what? Meaning they listened to him give this sermon that day, but then it was over, they got up, they went home, they never paid any more attention, never gave it another thought. They just went home and gave no more thought to what they had heard that day. Kind of like hearing a sermon in church and then going out to lunch without giving a second thought to what was just said for almost an hour. But instead of going to lunch, this particular man, we're told, whom Jesus calls foolish, in contrast to the wise man, he went home. He went home and he built a house. However, unlike the wise man who built his house on the foundation of the stable, rock-like truths of the word of God, This man built his house on sand. So if the rock is a reference to the stable and secure rock of God's infallible, inerrant word, then what does the sand represent? Well, the unstable sand speaks of the shifting opinions of men. In other words, religious traditions, human speculations, and the ever-changing moral standards of the culture. This is what a non-Christian builds his life upon. And that's why Jesus called this man a fool. Because though he had heard everything that the wise man heard, he was there. He heard everything. They both heard it together. He chose to ignore the infallible words of Christ and he built his life on the very, very, very fallible words of men. And what happened to this man when the storm came? It's just tragic. Jesus said the rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and slammed against that house and it fell and great was its fall. Unlike the wise man who did survive the storm of judgment as God passed over his sins because his faith was in Christ who was judged in his place, the foolish man didn't survive. He did not survive the storm of God's fierce judgment. See, God will not pass over those who build their lives upon sand. Because instead of trusting Christ as their substitute Savior from sin, they have trusted and they have built their lives upon those things that won't stand up. Like man's religious thoughts, man's opinions, human philosophies. None of that will help you when judgment comes. It may be trendy now, you may be popular, you may be cool to embrace these things, But it won't help you in the day of judgment. It also will not simply be the things of this life that will be swept away in the storm of God's judgment. Those who have ignored Christ and have ignored his word will themselves be eternally lost in hell. Swept away by the fierce storm of judgment. And that's why Jesus emphasized, he emphasized the devastation of this storm by saying this about this man and his house and it fell and great was its fall. It didn't simply fall. Great was its fall. With those words, Jesus has ended his sermon. He ended it by issuing a clear warning, a clear evangelistic call and appeal to those who call him Lord 
who know about him but don't know him as Lord. His word has no bearing on their lives. They simply ignore his word and they go about doing life as they please to do. So I ask you, is that you? Is that you? Do you know Jesus as Lord and evidence this by a lifestyle of submission to his lordship? Or are you a a false follower? A foolish, pretend believer, someone who professes to know Jesus but whose life reveals otherwise. If that's the case, then turn to him today. It's not too late. The judgment has not come yet. Trust him. Repent of your sin. Turn from your sin of self-centeredness, self-absorption. Turn to Christ. Trust him as your savior with an attitude of submission to his authority over you as your Lord When I came to Christ many years ago, my attitude was simply, Lord, I have blown it in my life. I have tried to be my own boss, and I have absolutely blown it. I've blown it in every area. I want you to rule over me. That's the attitude, or words to that effect that one has to have. It's not too late. But it will be too late when the fury of God's judgment comes. So make sure that he is your Lord now. You don't know when you're going to die. You don't know when it's going to be too late. Make sure Christ is your Lord now. I, I know this, Michelle and I have talked about this. This isn't even in my notes, but I'm facing this open heart surgery on Thursday. It doesn't matter that on Sundays I speak to hundreds of people. It doesn't matter that there's a radio ministry that who knows how many listen. It doesn't matter that I've written this book or that book. The only thing that matters when that gurney takes me into the room is Jesus and me. That's all. It doesn't matter. And I say to you, it doesn't matter anything else in life but that you know Christ. There will come a moment when you will die. You need Christ. I urge you, make sure you know him. And if you want to speak to any of our pastors about this, then just see me as we close the service. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for these words. I don't want anyone, Lord, here. I pray that those who truly know you will not be shaken in their assurance of salvation because your word is so precious. He who comes to me, I will in no way cast out. If you believe on me, I give you eternal life. So I pray for a a true, sincere believer that they will be assured of their salvation and not be shaken by this. But I pray for that person, those who know your word, but it just doesn't impact them doesn't matter what you've said. They're going to do whatever they want to do. I pray for that person, Lord, those people, whether they're here in person or watching on live stream or listening at some place, some point, I pray that you'll open their hearts to Christ, that they won't allow themselves to continue to be deceived, that they'll be honest, that they'll recognize that a mere profession is not the same thing as a possession of Christ. I pray that you'll do a great work of grace in the hearts of many today. This we pray in Jesus' name, amen.